Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 12. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plans of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first fruit, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Thank you, Kate. So, I want to start out by asking you to um, imagine that you have a family with a history of gambling addiction. And your father and your grandpa and your great-grandpa were all there. And so you, you know that you should never ever gamble. And you heard that growing up. Don't ever do this. But your friends invite you and you want to feel cool. So you go to the casino and you get hooked. And you do the same thing week after week after week. And you get in debt. You lose thousands and thousands of dollars. You lose your house. You lose your car. And you actually get a debt that's so big you have to spend the rest of your life trying to earn money in order to pay off this debt that you owe. You, you could say that at that point, you're a slave. You're, you're a slave to gambling and you're a slave to your debt and you made a decision to put yourself into that situation. And the reason that I bring that up is because whether we know it or not, all of us are actually in that situation spiritually. Now, you might not believe me right now. That might not make sense to you. And I'm going to do my best to explain how it is that we're all in a position of spiritual slavery. And the reason I want to bring that up is because this Bible passage that we're about to talk about is the good news of how Jesus sets us free from that slavery. And so we who are in spiritual slavery get to become free through Jesus. And that's, that's exactly what this passage is about. So the, main, the big takeaway that I want us to walk out of this room with is that only the blood of Jesus can really set us free. Only the blood of Jesus can really set us free. And I have a simple two-point outline. The first point is what the blood of Jesus frees us from. So what, is, what are we freed from? And the second point is what are we freed to? What does the blood of Jesus free us into? So let's start off by talking about what the cross of Christ frees us from. So the text says, in him we have redemption. And I want to talk about this word redemption 
because it's the key to understanding the passage. So redemption is actually a word that means to free someone else from slavery. It's to pay the ransom price for someone who's a slave, and that price actually lets them go free from their slavery and live a free life, and they're not any longer having to work for a particular person, doing whatever that person wants to do. And what some people call it is a ransom price. A ransom price frees someone from slavery, and, and that's what that word redemption means. So if you hear that word redemption in your Bible, and you don't understand exactly what it's talking about, it's talking about setting slaves free. Now, you might say, say wait a minute, hold, hold on, that, that doesn't line up with what I know about slavery. Um, slavery in America didn't work like that um, back in the day. If you were a slave, you couldn't ever get set free. You were, you were stuck doing that, and your kids after you were stuck doing that, and there was no way out. And actually, you're correct. So when we're talking about slavery, we have to distinguish between slavery in America and slavery in the ancient world. So slavery in the ancient world works differently. So back then, if you got really poor, your family got really poor, someone could actually sell you into slavery. You could even sell yourself into slavery if you got really poor. But the opposite is also true. So if you're in slavery, someone could pay the price that it would take to release you. Or if you earned enough money, you could even pay the price that it would take to release you. So it's a different, it's a different thing that we're talking about when we're talking about redemption in the Bible. And here's another detail that's important to note, and I really want us to note this, is that when we think about redemption as a price that frees us from slavery, and we're thinking about slavery in the ancient world, that it might not be someone's fault that they're a slave. They, they might have just messed up. They might have just gotten in a lot of debt and really needed someone to pay the price to get them out of debt. No one would say, oh, you screwed up. Oh, you, you did so much wrong. No, that, that could be something that just happened. But if we look at our passage, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood, and then it says, the forgiveness of sins. So it says, what that redemption is from, what that slavery is. And it mentions it's sins. It's not, we're not talking about money here. We're talking about sins. And sins actually means moral wrongdoing. So when we're talking about slavery in the Bible, we're talking about redemption. We're talking about being set free from moral wrongdoing. And that's quite a different thing than if you just made a mistake and ended up in slavery. So you might want to ask, how, how, does we, how do we end up in this place, right? Well, yeah, what are you talking about, and how do we end up in this place of slavery? So we have to go back to the beginning, to Adam and Eve, and they actually show how we're in slavery and how, and how it's a moral condition that we're in. So in the beginning, God created the Garden of Eden, and he made a bunch of trees and fruit and abundance for Adam and Eve to eat from, and they were totally free. They could eat from whatever tree they wanted to. God just said that there's this one tree you can't eat from. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Adam and Eve did eat from that tree. God said, don't eat from that tree. 
And they did eat from that tree. And from that point, they were plunged into a state of slavery. And you might say, Ross, what, what's the matter with eating that fruit? Like, really, why is that fruit such a big deal? Like, it's just eating a piece of fruit. The reason it's a big deal is because when we disobey a commandment of God, when, when a person disobeys a commandment of God, it makes a statement that that thing is more important than God is. That's the problem with it. So when Adam and Eve ate that apple or fruit or whatever it was, they were saying, this thing, God, that you made, this, this is more important than you are. And what that is, is it's treason. Because, because God is this infinitely holy and worthy God who deserves all of the praise and all of the worship from his people. Like, the one thing he deserves is for his people to always think and act in a way that shows how worthy he is. And when he gives a commandment and someone does something other than what that commandment is, what is that saying about him? It's saying he's small and he's insignificant and he's unimportant. And what I judge to be important in that moment is more important than he is. That's why the fruit matters. And so when, when they eat this fruit, they're actually thinking they're gaining their independence. They actually think, wow, if I can just do this and I'm on my own and I'm disobeying God's commandments, but actually eating the fruit made them a slave. Because as you know in the story, they fell at that point. Their, their hearts became broken. Not only could they no longer be in the garden, but they could no longer help but sin. They didn't have the choice anymore. That's the problem when your nature falls, is that your heart is bent towards sin. And, and whenever you're making a decision, you're going to lean towards deciding to do what God says not to do. So that, that's the problem of being in the garden. And here's, here's what, what, what's a devastating detail for me. Is that there isn't a single day that goes by that I don't fall into the same mistake as Adam and Eve. And in this room here, there isn't a day that a single person here in this room, any one of us, doesn't do the exact same thing. I know that's hard to stomach. You might think, Ross, I, never, I don't really hurt people. Like, like I, I'm a good citizen. Like, am, am I really someone who's disobeying God, someone who's really making him look small and tiny and insignificant? And the answer is, we're all in this situation. Think of the things that are in our hearts. I know I struggle with lust. I know I struggle with envy. You, you struggle with those things with me? What about, what about hatred or anger of other people? Or even, what does your heart desire? Like, so if God made this whole world so that we would know and enjoy him and we wake up and he's just not there, like it's just what, the other things that he made, like what, what is our ultimate treasure? I know I, I've toyed with so many different things that have been my ultimate joy, whether it's my job or my friends or my family or my favorite activity. There's so many things that we put in the place of him and that's just the garden repeated and repeated and repeated and it shows that Adam's our ancestor. It shows that we're truly his descendants because we have the same slavery, the same bent towards doing this thing that dishonors God. And it's really sad. And Romans 6, 
actually says that whatever you prefer over God, like whatever you prefer, like whatever you like more than him, that's what you're a slave to. Because that's what you orient your life around. That's what you actually sacrifice the good of other people to get. That's what you sacrifice your own good to get, is that, is that thing that you put above him, that you put over him. And then, sorry, it gets even more tragic than that. Um, so we often respond in the wrong way. We, so, we, so we understand, right? We all understand we're broken people. And our response is we try to earn our way out of it. That's what I try to do. How many good things can I do to balance out the scales? Because if I can finally get the scales to be even, or maybe do a little more good than evil, then I'll finally be out of slavery. I'll finally be free. I'll finally have paid back this insurmountable debt that I can't pay back. But that's not how it works. Because every time I'm trying, every time I'm making a little bit of progress, I'm taking 10 steps back. It's quite frankly, it's impossible to try to live up to this impossible level of holiness that we have to live up to. That's, that's why it's called slavery. You can't get out of it. You're trapped. You're stuck. And so paying it back yourself isn't the answer. I'm not trying to invite you to just earn your way out of it. That's an endless amount of effort and striving that won't get you anywhere. And the scary part that we often miss is that the price of our slavery, the price of our debt, is our lives. Like, if you went to a store and someone was offering you something, and they said, and you say, how much will this cost? And they say, your life. No one would ever take that deal. But that's the deal we took. That's the deal we took with sin, is we took that deal where it cost us our life. And we see this in the Bible. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And we see this throughout the scriptures in the pattern. After Adam and Eve sinned, we find them clothed in animal skins because that shows that the price of their sin was death for those animals. After God wiped out the world in a flood and saved Noah, Noah sacrifices an animal on the altar. And the incense is a pleasing aroma to God. And it shows that death was required for Noah's sins. And then, throughout the entire history of Israel, we have the example of Moses' covenant and the old covenant. And in that covenant, they sacrifice animals day and night, year after year, to show that it takes the shedding of blood to pay back the price of sins. And where we are right now, where we stand on our own, is the price we have is our own blood. That, that's the price of our sin. There's a, the animal sacrifice was something in the Old Testament, but that's not around anymore. There's no animal you can sacrifice. There's no blood you can pay besides your own to get out of the situation that we're all in. And so that's where this text comes in. Look at it. Look at, look at the Bible right now. So we're in slavery. There's no way out. It's our own blood we owe. And this is what God tells us. In him, we have redemption through his blood. 
That's a way out. That's the freedom we need. So what the Bible says is that even though you're stuck here and there's nothing you can do on your own to get out of it, God made a way for you. He did. He did. What did he do? He sent his son Jesus. You hear all these stories about how good of a guy Jesus was and how great of a man he was. They're all true. And it's so much more than that. He was perfect. He never sinned. He was the only person who lived completely free. He lived a completely free life. He never served anything but his father. He only served God. And, and what that meant is that he didn't owe his life. He didn't owe his blood. He was a free person. And what it says is that we have redemption in his blood. So when, when Jesus went to the cross, he was dying as the only innocent person who ever died. If I were to die, I'd be a guilty person. Before God, right now, if I were to pass away, God owes me nothing. Jesus was the only one who never, ever, ever deserved to die, and there he was. He died on the cross, in my place, taking my sins, and the sins of anyone who will turn to trust in him. That's what it means. That's the ransom price. I was talking about the ransom price that they paid earlier in the ancient world for slavery. How do you get a slave free? You pay the price to get them out. The blood of Jesus is that price. It's the highest price. It's a steep price. But that's how we know that anyone can be free. That, that's how you know that no matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done, you can be free. That blood is so powerful. Jesus was completely free, and he gave it to anyone who would have it. That's the ransom price. In him we have redemption. Redemption, freedom through his blood. And so that's exactly the hope that this text shares with us. And at the end of the day, it's either our blood or his blood. And so I know I shared a convicting message. I know I shared a message that wasn't fun to hear. But I want you to know that so you can have the joy of being free. I want you to feel the slavery of having to commit sin and being apart from God so that when you receive his blood, you can receive that joy. And if anyone in here today wants to receive that blood, wants to receive the ransom price, you just have to trust him. It's so simple. You just have to put your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus. You put him in Jesus and he'll give you his blood to cover you from your sins, completely ransom you and free you. And you might, you might ask, well, I don't know what that means, Ross. Well, that's okay. Please, please come and talk with me after the sermon or any of the people up here. We'd be happy just to answer questions for you to help, help you understand what this is that we're talking about, that there's true freedom in Jesus. And that's why the main takeaway today is only the blood of Jesus can really set us free. It's only his blood that really gets us out of that position of slavery to our sin and an inability to pay it back. And what I mean by that you'll be forgiven is not that your body right now won't die. That will die. But your soul, rather than passing into judgment to pay for sin, will pass into God's presence to enjoy his life. And one day, you'll get a new body. You'll get a new body to enjoy God's physical physical presence forever. So that's point one. What does the blood of Jesus free us from? Now I want to answer the question, what does the blood of Jesus free us to? What do we get into? Like it's one thing to have 
your shackles taken off and the prison door thrown open, but like, where do you go? Like, what do you do with that freedom? So what does the blood of Jesus free us to? Now, if we look at the next few verses in our text, um, they're a little confusing. They gave me a huge headache this week. Um, it says, so he gave us forgiveness of sins in according with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the fullness of times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. So, this text, these next few verses talk about a mystery. So I want you to just look at your Bibles and think about what is this mystery? What, what is the mystery that we're, that's being revealed to us? What is the mystery that's being disclosed to us? I like a good mystery. Like what, what is it? What hidden thing is being revealed to us? And this is going to answer the question, what will my freedom get me? So Paul is answering the question, this new freedom, this newfound freedom that I've received in Christ, what is it? What, what is it going to get me? So it talks about God's grace that he lavished on us. He lavished his grace on us with wisdom. And in this context, the way that he lavished grace on us is he let us know what his will was. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to share my plan with you. I'm going to share my plan with you, and I'm going to share my plan with you for my son. I'm going to share with you my plan for my son, Jesus. And his plan for his son, Jesus, is so much bigger than any of us. Like, we're just a small part in Jesus' plan. We're an important part, but we're just a small part in the overall plan that God has for everything in Jesus. And we get to, and the grace God gives us is, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do through Jesus. I'm going to tell you what my plan for the future is, what where the world, where history is going. And where he says that the world and history is going is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. And so the place the world is going is that God is going to unite all things in Jesus. He's going to bring it under Jesus' good reign. Right now things are, he's in control, but he's not actively reigning over everything because we know that there's sin and death and pain and loss in this world. And so day is coming where everything is under his rule. Everything is under his reign in a complete way. And so it's good and there's nothing bad or harmful or painful. And, and what it mentions is it says he's going to bring into unity all things in heaven and on earth. And we say, well, what does that mean? Well, if you turn to the first verse in the Bible, you don't have to right now, it's, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So those two words are the full spectrum of all the things God created. Everything God created is about Jesus. And everything God created is going back to this place where it's all summed up in Jesus and he's actively reigning over it and it's only reflecting him and working exactly like it was supposed to. Some people call this the new heavens and the new earth. It's a new creation, a new world that isn't like this world. We know something's wrong with this world. We know it's broken. And the new heavens and the new earth doesn't have any of the brokenness of this world. The new heavens and the new earth is perfect. There's no sin. There's no suffering. There's no 
racism, there's no sexism, there's no slavery, there's no genocide. All these things that make us cringe and cry and weep are going away. All the alienation in our relationships, all the feelings of loneliness and depression and shame and guilt, there's no room for that in the new world. There's no room for that in the new creation. And that's God's plan in Jesus, and that's where we're going, and that's what we're being redeemed into. That's what we're being set free for, is for the purpose of living in this new world with God side by side. And so we really need to get the thought out of our minds that heaven is a place that we escape this world to go to. That when we die, our souls just go to this place way up in the clouds where we play harps with the angels. That's just not where the world, that's not what, why God invented the world. He invented the world so that it could be a beautiful garden city where God lives with his people in his flesh. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back to live with whoever will be redeemed by him in this new world that has all the fun things that we love to do here, except for we'll be doing it with him. And it won't have any of the pain and any of the loss and loneliness that we have when we do it right now. So here's the hiccup. There's, um, there's a problem with this plan. And the problem is that if God is coming to create a brand new world that's perfect, where there's no sin or loss or death or dying, and there is sin and loss and dying and death in this world, what he has to do is remove from the new world what's causing the old world to be broken. Whatever the problem is in this world has to go away if the new world is going to be this place without sin and death and brokenness. And here's where we go so wrong. The world often tells us that the solution to our brokenness is in here. We just need to look inside of ourselves. Like, think of your, any Disney movie. Look inside yourselves and you'll find the solution to the world and the problems out there. The problems out there, and if you just look inside your heart, you'll find the solution. But the Bible actually tells us that the solution's out there. His name's Jesus. He had to come into this world to be the solution, and our own hearts are the problem. Our own hearts are the reason. My heart is the reason that the world is messed up like it is because I don't love God and my neighbor like I should. There's once a Christian author named G.K. Chesterton, and there's a story that a newspaper wrote him a question and said, you know, Mr. Chesterton, what, what's wrong with the world? Would you, please, would you please write to us and tell us what's wrong with the world? And he wrote them back, and he wrote, Dear Sir, I am, I am, signed G.K. Chesterton. And until we recognize that, each of us recognize that, and I'm not here saying you're the problem, and I'm not, until we recognize that each one of us personally is the problem. We're not going to reach for the solution. And so the hiccup, the problem, is that if we're the problem with the old world, we can't be a part of the new world. If we're a problem with the broken world, we can't be the citizens, the family members of the new world. And that's where the cross comes in. That's what redemption is all about. So when, Jesus, when I say, what is Jesus redeeming us to? He's redeeming us to this new world that we can be a part of. If God came and he just created a new world without a cross, if he did it without a cross, he could do it. 
but we couldn't be a part of it. That would be the solution of if Jesus came without a cross. There could be a new world, but there's no hope for me. But the fact that Jesus actually takes my sin and takes my brokenness on himself and suffers and dies and removes it from me is the reason that I'm able to participate in this new world. I'm unfit for it before I meet Jesus. He makes me fit for it. He makes me someone who can live there. And I'm not ready yet. I'm still becoming more holy, and I'll finally be holy when I'm in God's presence. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, he does three things. He takes away the penalty of sin is the first thing he does. So literally right now, because I'm trusting in Jesus, I, there's no penalty for my sins. I talk about how t- terrible sin is. I don't have that penalty. Jesus takes away the power of sin. I don't, I'm not a slave to sin anymore. Yes, I still commit it. Yes, I still fall. But I don't have to. I can say no. I have the Holy Spirit in me, and I can say no, and I can live more and more like I will in the new heavens and new earth when I'm there with Jesus. And finally, Jesus removes the presence of sin. That's the last thing he'll do, is remove the presence of sin. And when he removes the presence of sin, that's when you're finally fit to live in the new creation with him. That's when you're finally ready to be in a place with no suffering, no dying, no death, and no loss. Because he's removed sin from you. And you won't be the problem anymore. You'll be part of the redeemed. You'll be one of the children of God. And you'll enjoy this new place with him forever. And that's what freedom is. Like, you want to be free? Live in the new world with God. Be a person who's never sad when you get there. Look forward to that day when you'll be with God face to face. And you'll be free that day. You'll be totally free to enjoy God forever in a place that's like the Garden of Eden, but even better. So that's what Jesus is freeing us into. And I just want everyone here to be there with me. Like, that's why I want to talk about this. There's no one I don't want to be there. So the only way that people can get there who aren't going there is if they hear about Jesus. And that's why we talk about Jesus. So every time you talk to someone about Jesus, the biggest reason you should do it is because you want to honor him and because you want that person to be in this place with you. Like, I wouldn't want to go there without you. I want, to, I want you to be there. I want you to be with me. So now I want to apply this text. I want to answer the question, not only what did Jesus do, what will Jesus do, but what is he doing now? Like, what, what is this change about how I live five minutes from now or tomorrow? What difference does that make? And one thing that I want to address is how redemption, Jesus is rescuing us from slavery, addresses our shame. I want to talk about shame. So guilt is... I've done bad. Shame is, I look bad. So slavery, if you think about it, is a shameful thing. Um, Or at least those who tend to be in it feel denigrated, feel less than other people. But it's a really shameful thing if you're the person who's the reason that puts you into slavery. And as a result, what we try to do once we're in this position of slavery, once we know that we're the responsible ones who got us there, is we try to hide from God. Our whole lives are lives of hiding from God and trying to get away from God, 
you remember Adam and Eve in the garden? Right after they ate the fruit, immediately they went and hid from God and tried to cover themselves. And that is how we live in relationship with God until we meet Jesus. Even our pets understand this. Like, when you tell them not to be on the table, and they still go on the table, and you walk in the room, and they weren't expecting you to, boom, they're gone, and they're hiding, because they want to hide from you, because they understand that it's a shameful thing when you're disobeying your master, when you're disobeying the one who is over you. And we have to come to terms that that's not helpful. It's not helpful to hide from God when we're all going to meet him face to face one day. So eventually, we'll die. Eventually, this life will be over. Okay, maybe you'll get away for 10 or 20 or 30 years, maybe 50 years if you're lucky. But there hasn't been anyone who's lived yet who hasn't died. And one day, you're going to face God, and there won't be any hiding anymore. And your sins and the things you've done wrong, they're going to be exposed, and they're going to be out there. And the only hope is whether or not you've received the redemption and freedom that there is in Jesus. Because if there is, you have no need to be ashamed on that day. If you've received him, there's no need to not want to stand before God that day. You won't feel a bit of shame. You'll be completely blameless. And you won't be saying, look how good I did. You'll just be saying, look how good Jesus did. Look what he did for me. And it will be a good day when you finally meet him. And so I just want you to ponder and think to yourself with me, how am I hiding from God? How am I getting away from God right now in my life? And when we do that, when we hide from God, we show that we don't understand redemption. So if you understand redemption, like if you understand how Jesus rescues people from slavery, then you just stop hiding. So when you're doing that in your life, when you're creating separation and distance between yourself and God, that should be our clue. Oh, Redemption. I'm not getting redemption, how it works. So one way I think that a lot of us, even Christians, hide from God is that when we sin, when we do wrong, we just try to quickly clean up our behavior and just act like we never sinned and just never acknowledge that we did any wrong. This is one thing I'm prone to do. Just like, oh, it's okay, and now I'm just going to change that, and it's all good, and nothing happened, and nothing was wrong, and everything's fine now. But really, I offended God. Like, I offended my best friend. I offended the person who was close to me. And that can't, I can't live like that. Think of your wife or your best friend. If you did something horrible to them, and instead of repenting to them and saying, I'm sorry, and restoring that relationship, you just stop doing it and just pretend it never happened. We can't live like that. We have to repent. We have to confess. Those are some of the sweetest times in our relationship where our walk with God and our relationship with God grows bigger and deeper and deeper. There's, um, Martin Luther once says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire lives of believers should be repentance. And here's the beautiful thing. Oftentimes, I think, even as Christians, we try to hide because we still think Jesus is disgusted by our sins. Like, you really think you shocked him or disappointed him, as if there's something he wasn't expecting or something he couldn't handle. But we got to recognize that our sin is never more powerful than the blood of Jesus. We cannot outsin the cross. And so when, when you sin, you always have a Father who's ready to forgive you. 
So let's not just be people who change the behavior on the outside without addressing the heart. That's a hypocrite. And that's what shame drives us to do. When we avoid God to try to fix our own behavior without ever acknowledging how we fell short, that's how we know how shame is controlling us and we don't understand that redemption is bringing us back to God. I think another way that we let shame control us is we put ourselves in the penalty box. So, like, I sinned and now I have to take a time out from my relationship with God until I fix myself up and then I'm ready to go back into his presence. I used to do this a lot when I looked at things on the internet that I shouldn't. And I felt a lot of shame and a, a lot of separation from God because of that. And I felt, oh man, i got to take this time off. And if I'm holy and pure and clean for this long, well then, then God will accept me back into his presence. And I want, some, I want you to recognize something that when we sin, when we fall, we, there, you will feel disruption, like a difference in God's presence, and that's, that's part of sinning and something we should dread. But that doesn't mean we should stop pursuing him until we feel better. That doesn't mean we should let shame keep us separate from Jesus until we can return to him. He paid the price for that sin. There's no sin besides a canceled sin that you have to deal with. And so feel free to go back to him right away. Pursue him. He will show mercy to you. He will receive you back. And I want to ask the question, like, what does it look like? What does it look like to have a community without shame? A shame-free community. What would that look like? And what I think it would look like is a people who freely and openly confess their sins to one another. We don't hide our sins from one another because Jesus has freed us from our slavery and therefore freed us from our shame. James 5, 15 and 16 says, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will also be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So here at All People's Church, we need a love confession. And I'm really looking forward to next month when we start our DNA groups. And that's just going to be groups of three or four people who have this opportunity to be really intimate and to make confession part of their daily, weekly rhythms. And I've already had the privilege of being a part of a few of these with some guys who are trying it out. And it's so freeing just to be able to say, I stumble, I fell, I need prayer, and I'm going to receive healing. And I don't have to pretend I didn't fall. I don't have to pretend to be someone that I'm not anymore. And we've heard so many people criticize the church and say, the church is a place that's full of hypocrites and judgmental people. And I wonder if that's because the church doesn't confess her sins. Because once we confess our sins, once we put it out in the open, we're not pretending to be someone we're not anymore. You're only a hypocrite when you're pretending to be more holy than you actually are. And that's what helps you become judgmental towards other people. But, I mean, if you're not trying to be anything more than what you are, if you're able to freely confess, it will help you become the kind of humble, authentic person that will make this community appealing and attractive to unbelievers who only know pretenders, who don't have a place to confess their sins. We do have a place to confess our sins, and we do have a place where our shame has been removed, and it's at the cross of Jesus. And so let us confess. Let us not let shame control us. And one final question you might ask is, Ross, I've now committed the sin for the 1,000th time. And I promised, I promised God I would never do it again. And I did it. I did it again. Will the blood of Jesus help me? Will the blood of Jesus atone for that sin? And the answer is yes. 
You, it, it will. You cannot outsin the blood of Jesus to the thousandth, to the millionth time you sin. He will cover your shame. He will forgive you and receive you back. No matter how low you go, he's always there and he's always ready to forgive. Now, I, we should consider one thing. If you sin in a way that it characterizes your life, if there's never any change, then it's possible that you haven't met Jesus yet because the blood of Jesus is powerful and it changes who we are. So it's okay to consider that. If I'm utterly trapped in a sin and I can't get free, maybe I've never met him yet. Maybe I've never met Jesus yet. And, that, and that's not something that I'm saying to make you feel shame or dread or condemnation. I'm just saying that because the solution for you is the same solution as all of us. If you haven't met him yet, then believe. He's always ready to forgive every person. And no matter where you're at, no matter how far you've fallen, just believe. Look to him. Trust to him. And he will receive you back. He wasn't dying on the cross for no reason. He, was, he paid such a high price so that his blood would actually forgive people. So when you repent, it does do that. It washes sins away. It washes shame away. And it restores a relationship with him. Now one thing I love so much about the cross is that it flips the tables on all of Jesus' enemies. It completely thwarts them. Colossians 2.15 says, Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So when, when they put Jesus to death, they tried to shame him. They tried to depict him as a fraud. They tried to depict him as a liar and as a weakling. And their entire effort was thwarted when he rose from the dead. And their entire effort to make us look like we're shameful for following him was thwarted when Jesus rises from the dead because we're going to rise from the dead with him. And when he comes back to judge and be king and show that he is righteous and those who followed him are righteous, he's going to put to shame everyone who opposed God's people the devil and all of his servants, they'll be put to shame at that moment. So even though they tried to put Jesus to shame, the cross actually turns the table on them and they're put to shame. And even though there are Satan and the forces, the spiritual forces are trying to make you feel shame, trying to make you feel condemnation, trying to make you feel guilt, the cross is our triumph too. And we're free from that in Jesus Christ. And so now I'm going to invite Sam to please come up, and he's just going to play some music as you have an opportunity to pray and to just meet with Jesus right now. Just reflect on the sermon, whatever was helpful for you, whatever blessed you, maybe something that confronted you. Just meet God, pray about that, and, and ask what he would have from you. And like I said before, if you have any questions at all about anything that I said, I really want to talk to you after the service, so so please come forward. And so now please just bow your heads and close your eyes and just, and just listen gently to what Jesus has to say to you today.